Sean is passing out. Tired here. We're at zero bars. <laughs> In the last episode, Ben Blackwell said that 2000 was a crucial year of connections for Jack and Meg White. And the biggest component of that was their first real tour out to the West Coast and back. Now, yeah, they'd played some shows out of town and even done those dates with Pavement that we talked about last season. But this was the first real tour, an extended run where you're out in the world for weeks at a time. It can feel lonely and overwhelming, and it can feel life-affirming and exhilarating. You know, the tour would be a catalyst for some relationships that still last to this day and would provide the first inklings that, as we talked about in the last episode, the White Stripes might, might exceed Jack and Meg's modest hopes at that point. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. We discussed some of those crucial connections Blackwell mentioned in the previous episode, namely the support of BBC DJ John Peel and the addition of booking agent Dave Kaplan, who put together the White Stripes' first big excursion out into the world, which took place from June 10th to June 30th in the year 2000, three full weeks out on the road. Having an agent put together your very first substantive run of shows is kind of a big deal. I mean, we already talked about how tough it can be to find an agent this early on, and also the advantages of having a good agent in the first place. But even with that kind of leg up, it's not like the band had grandiose expectations for this tour. In fact, uh, there might not have been any at all. I don't, I don't think there was any legitimate expectations just because they'd never done anything like it before. They'd never been gone for more than three days. I mean, there's earlier like three-day jaunts in 2000. But I don't, I don't think there could be any realistic expectations. There was like, they knew what their guarantees were for the shows, but no idea of like what merch would sell. Oh, let's, let's establish this tour. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So you can get a sense of just how Spartan things really were. Now, you can have a lot of different setups on tour, but most indie bands take a small trailer, like a U-Haul, and maybe a 12-passenger van with three bench seats in the back. As much gear and merch as possible get stuffed in the trailer, and then the rest goes in the van with the band. I can get cramped, but you make do and figure out how to carve out space. You have to. The White Stripes, on the other hand, had a small Dodge van with a single bench and no trailer. Everything was stuffed in the van, between the seats, under the bench, piled up to the ceiling in the back. And it might have been just Jack, Meg, and Blackwell, but it was still pretty packed. And don't forget, they're not making enough to get a hotel room every night, so that means sleeping upright or propped against boxes most of the time. But I think the most instructive tidbit about how they traveled had to do with Jack's now iconic airline guitar. There's um, no case for it. It's literally wrapped in a blanket. If I remember correctly, it's my mom. She did this thing for everyone in my family where she knit an afghan for everyone when they graduated high school. So I took that afghan, which was red, white, and blue. I wanted it to look like a beat-up old American flag. So it got like all the right colors. And that's what we wrapped Jack's guitar in every night. Just think about that for a second. In 2000, that guitar is just thrown in a van with a blanket. And in 2020, it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Come and sit with me and talk a while. Let me see your pretty little smile. Put your troubles in a little pile. 
Okay, so on to the tour itself. It kicked off in Milwaukee, which, as you might remember from last season, was one of the earliest cities outside Detroit to latch onto the White Stripes. That show in Milwaukee was great. It was the Wax Wings, which is, you know, Dean Fertitta's band, Dean Fertitta's Queens of the Stone Age. Now he's in the Dead Weather Tours with Iraq and Tours. Uh, so they do Milwaukee, then they do Madison. Madison, also the first time I ever had Thai food. Oh, and uh, that's not exactly true. It was the first time Blackwell ate at a Thai restaurant. But as far as what he ate there, well... <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I ordered a hamburger at the Thai food place. <laughs> and I'm like super self-conscious about it. <laughs> and I, th- I think I was even like, yeah, um, no tomatoes. <laughs> That's right. He might have had tomatoes for the very first time a year before, but he still wasn't a fan. Uh, But enough of Ben Blackwell's culinary adventures, or or lack thereof. After those two Wisconsin shows, there was a day off, and then it's Minneapolis, which ends up being a little instructive. So that day we get to Minneapolis at a reasonable early time, and we go to the fucking Mall of America. What else are you going to do when you go to Minneapolis and you're in a rock band, right? So they ride the roller coasters in the mall, wander around, do some shopping. And there's a vintage store in the Mall of America at that time, which is pretty weird. But we went there. I think it was called Ragstock. And uh, this is June 12th, 2000. We're there. And it's the first time I ever saw Jack and Meg recognized. And a kid working at the store is like, hey, are you guys the White Stripes? And they're like, yeah, we are. It's like, oh, man, I'm a big fan. Like, yeah, we're playing in town. And I said, yeah, my his band or some friend's band was playing across town. He's like, yeah, I can't make it. And was like, you must not be that big of a fan. But it was just like, wow, how crazy is it that, like, yeah, you'd imagine a huge, super amazing, you know, on MTV rock stars to get recognized at the Mall of America. But who would have thought that the White Stripes' first ever recognition would happen at the Mall of America? And that night, the White Stripes play at 7th Street Entry, which is attached to 1st Avenue. That's the place where Prince recorded Purple Rain. So imagine how that feels to be young upstarts taking the stage in the same space where something like that happened. In other words, it's a pretty heavy day all around. I fall in love with you. I think I'll marry you. From there, they hit the Minnesota North Dakota border for a show in Moorhead, uh, then on to Missoula, Montana where the White Stripes play with the band 90 Day Men, who you should definitely check out if you never have. And that brings us to the first actual West Coast date of their quote-unquote West Coast tour, and the most pivotal show on the tour for a lot of reasons. Now, Seattle is like the first, like I'm telling you all these anecdotes, whatever, and they're kind of don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but Seattle is where everything actually starts to matter. So they play at the Sit and Spin in Seattle, and... That night, they were rehearsing one more cup of coffee because they wanted to make sure they could play it by the time they got to L.A. because Long Gone John, who had put out the records, wanted to hear it, and they hadn't played it in a while. So I remember them doing one more cup of coffee at uh, Soundcheck. But, you know, to talk about the, the show in and of itself, the show, in the crowd is Jonathan Poneman from Sub Pop, Slim Moon from Kill Rock Stars, Kill Rockstars, by the way, is the longtime Pacific Northwest label that's put out records from indie heavyweights like Elliot Smith, The Gossip, The Decemberists, Slater Kinney, Bikini Kill, and all kinds of other influential folks. And uh, 
Julie Butterfield, who at that time is managing Slater Kinney or doing their publicity. The reason that I mentioned Julie is because she sees the band and calls, calls, but relays the message to Janet Weiss of Slater Kinney. Says, hey, I just saw this band, The White Stripes. You should check them out. I was already like obsessed with them because I had gotten the first full length. That's Julie. And I worked at a record store in Seattle called Sonic Boom, which is still a record store. And we just listened to that record like all the time and stared at the cover and like, you know, like, wow, this is so cool. I love it. And we were really excited that they were going to come to town. So it was for sure like on the calendar. Like, oh, we get to finally see them. And unlike a lot of folks encountering Jack and Meg for the first time, Julie wasn't all that perplexed by the whole two-piece thing, since she'd done PR for a few two-pieces over the years. Not only that, but it kind of got her even more amped for the show. It was exciting to me that they were a two-piece, because I think that it makes you, it exposes you in a way that, like, you're going to know, like, right away, like, if it's a real thing. And it's certainly, like, right away when they played, like, wow. It blew us all back, for sure. It was, like, electric, you know? Because, like, the songs, they have, like, tough songs. But then they also seemed, like, really, like, sweet and shy to me. So, like, those two things together were just so fascinating. Like, I just was, like, totally fascinated by them. I just couldn't believe, like, it was real. Once I saw them live, I definitely told Janet and I think Carrie too, like, oh my God, I saw this band. They're so great. There was for sure, like, you got to hear this band. You got to get their records. After that star-studded Seattle show, Jack and Meg head down the West Coast for a gig in Portland, where Fred and Tootie Cole from the band Dead Moon show up at the recommendation of Dave Kaplan. Dead Moon, that's another band you need to check out if you haven't. Then they hit the Bay Area for the biggest show the White Stripes would headline the entire tour, in front of a crowd of 350 at the bottom of the hill. So it was like a Tuesday night sold out, and that was kind of like, what? Like, you know, San Francisco is a fucking forward-thinking music town. You know, people are going to be hip to it in San Francisco before Dubuque, Iowa. So that was kind of like, wow, that's like sold out on a Tuesday. That's kind of a big deal. It really was a big deal because even though Blackwell's right that San Francisco is at the forefront of culture in that regard, just think about the fact that compared to the other big cities they played on this tour, the San Fran audience was something like five to ten times larger than the rest. Oh, this is the best fucking part. So at the time, there's distribution. The two, the two main folks distributing White Stripe stuff are Mordam and Revolver. And they both have their headquarters, warehouses, whatever you want to call them, in San Francisco. And the band needed more records at this point, so they made plans to hit Revolver, which had those first two Italy record singles Dave Buick put out in 98, and Mordam, which carried the band's sympathy for the record industry catalog. Both of these places we go there and building upon what I saw at the Mall of America with the band getting recognized, these are distributors who sell the band's records. When the band walks in, people are like, oh shit, the White Stripes are here. And people are like stoked and like, dare I say, like starstruck. And in my mind, I was like, oh man, like 
I got to imagine bands don't come to the distributor warehouse very often. Like, you know, these are just people who are stacking boxes 40 hours a week. It's just nice to see a person. I was like, oh, it's just kind of, kind of cute, you know. The following year, my band, The Dirt Bombs, has to go pick up some merch on tour at Revolver. I think I might even, like, <laughs> self-assuredly warn the band before we go in of, like, hey, guys, just so you know, they're going to be excited when we walk in. Those those folks that were over, like, who, who are you guys? What's the dirt, the dirt Bombs? All right, yeah, let me, let me see. I, I, I don't know. Like, could not have given two fucking shits we were there. It was like, oh, they were just psyched that it was the fucking White Stripes. It's not, they don't get psyched for any band coming in there. So, whereas that incident in Minneapolis, where they were recognized at the Mall of America, might have been instructive, the whole experience in San Francisco was downright revelatory. Especially once Blackwell had that added bit of perspective. Now, from there, they do a show in Sacramento and head down to Los Angeles. And some rest stop between San Francisco and L.A., we run into 90-day men. Like, how, what are the chances? Obviously, you're on the same touring route, essentially. But, like, a week later, same time of day, same road, same rest stop. Like, wow, this means something. I think what it means is that the White Stripes are now officially a touring band. Because as legitimately weird as that sounds, it's something that happens shockingly often to bands on the road. Um, and then down to L.A. In L.A., we headquarter at Long Gone John's house. He has a place in Long Beach. And there's a couple shows in L.A., SoCal area. So they do um, Al's Bar, I think, is the first show, which in my understanding is just a shithole. No one really thinks favorably, fondly upon it. And she's there. The she Blackwell mentioned is Janet Weiss, the drummer of Slater Kinney, who, as you'll remember, was told, you gotta see this band, after the White Stripes played Seattle a week earlier. I was living in Portland, but I was dating someone who lived in L.A., and so I would go down there. I'm from L.A., but I don't live there. Um, And I was going down to L.A. to visit my boyfriend at the time, and my friend Julie Butterfield suggested that I go see this band. But it turns out Julie wasn't the only person who attended that Seattle show to put the white stripes on Janet's radar. Actually, Slim Moon from Kill Rock Stars told me about the white stripes. and was like, you have to see this band. They're incredible. Slim Moon wasn't just giving Janet a recommendation, though. He was kind of giving her a job. He's like, they're playing at Al's Bar when you're down there. You should go down there and tell them to be on Kill Rock Stars. That's what he said. Of course, now you're wondering if she chose to accept that clandestine mission. No, I wasn't going to do that. But he was so emphatic about this band that I had to go see that I was like, okay, well, Slim has good taste in music. But no, I was not going to see the band as like an A&R mission for Kill Rock Stars. (laughs) So this is like the second time from really reputable sources uh, that this band, The White Stripes, were suggested. Uh, yeah, so I went. And remember how I said that San Francisco crowd was five to ten times bigger than the other shows? Well, it was more like 35 times bigger than this one. There were probably ten people there. <laughs> uh, I'm sure some of them were the opening band. And, you know, I just immediately 
noticed the sort of, you know, the stage setup at the time with the two mics. I'm, you know, I've been in a two-piece band myself for many, many years. So that wasn't, the fact that it was a two-piece wasn't that surprising, but the the mic right on top of the drum, you know, when Jack would come over and sing kind of right on top of the drum kit, that was pretty awesome. You know, the first time you see that and just the chemistry and the song structures with all the weird stops and the toms and definitely memorable. They put on as good a show for 10 people as they put on for 10,000 people. And then after they play, she comes up to the merch table. She buys a copy of the Hello Operator picture disc. And this is probably, yeah, it's probably like the most starstruck I get on that tour. (laughs) You You meet people like names you've seen or heard and... You get excited. I say, you Janet from Slater Kinney? You say, yeah. I say, oh, man, I'm, I'm Ben. I'm just a big fan. And she seemed kind of like, oh, wow. Like, that's really, really nice. And she had said, like, you know, let me uh, know. Um, you know, if, if next time Slater Kinney is in, in Detroit or whatever, come and say hi. And then she takes it a step further. I said, well, you guys should come on tour with us. I mean, just casually, you know, like, hey, come on tour. Be so fun. Really? Wow. Like, how nice. Like, in my mind, they, Slater Kinney was huge rock stars. That might sound a little like hyperbole, since it's not like Slater Kinney ever sold out arenas. But Blackwell told me this story that I think gives you a pretty good impression of where Slater Kinney stood in the indie rock pantheon around this time. Uh, so he had this Slater Kinney t-shirt. I remember wearing it to college. And a professor coming up. This wasn't even a professor I had. It was like the professor that taught the in the room before my class started. And I walk in wearing a Slater Kinney t-shirt. And she's like, Slater Kinney, I hear they're the next REM. And I was like, yeah, that's actually probably a really, really apropos comparison. I'm really shocked I'm getting it from a professor at college. But wow. Like, yeah, like the level that... REM hit in the in the eighties of being the 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 biggest college band when it was college rock. I think that was Slater Kinney's mantle in the late nineties, early two thousands. The point of the story is that it was pretty flattering to have Janet suggest the idea of touring together after just seeing one poorly attended show. Granted, offhandedly saying "let's tour together" is hardly a concrete invitation, but that ah, that's inconsequential. She could have thrown out any kind of platitude, but she said. I like you enough to represent my band's perspective and taste on stage. So whether it actually happens or not doesn't matter in the moment. After Blackwell pulls himself together, the band finishes up their stay in L.A. and heads further south to San Diego for a free show at the Casbah, which is the only night in the history of the White Stripes when Ben Blackwell was an official member of the band. Sort of. And we get to... San Diego and the guy's like, I can't let you in. Like you legally, like you can't be in here. Because he was under 21 at the time. I was like, come on, come on. I'm, I'm working for the band, man. I'm selling the merch. Like, it's not like I live down the street. Like we're from Detroit. And the guy kind of like pauses and like sighs. And he says, technically, if you're on stage while the band is playing, you're considered a member of the band. And you can stay in 
for that. So the the club, the Casbah, which I would play dozens of times, I would visit. It was like almost the only place I know in San Diego. There's this little, almost out of sight spot on the on the back stage right that kind of almost leads to the the back door, which leads to the street. But this is like this little cubby where I could kind of almost just like out of sight, be on stage and watch the performance. And as soon as they were done, I had to get out. They made me leave. And so we sold the merch from the van on the street. So technically, according to the San Diego Liquor Board, the White Stripes had three members that night. Uh, We crashed at John Reese, Speedo from Rocket from the Crip, crashed at his house. Super nice. You might be noticing a pattern here. Meeting up with folks from 90 Day Men, Dead Moon, Slater Kinney, John Reese. Like we were talking about earlier, that's all part of life on the road as a band. But as Blackwell says here, it's also something much deeper than just a handful of random tour encounters. Like people who are smart and people who are in it and people who are like rock and roll is what they love and what they care about and what they can't, they couldn't stop liking if they tried. Like these people will continue to show up in your life, in my life. In the, ne- in the intervening 20 years, I still see that guy at shows and talk to him and email with him and we have mutual interests. Um, this is like fully to the power of, of rock and roll and how it actually is really, really a small world. Like people come and go dilettantes, like fucking dipping their toe. Like I'm going to be a rock star kind of shit. But like, if this is your life, if this is your calling, if this is your passion, you're very quickly going to be connected to the other people who are the same way. So yeah, John Reese, perfect example. After a cookout at John Reese's place, the gang gets on the road to swing back East and head home with a night off initially. And then Denver. So now we hit the stretch where we don't know anyone anywhere. Denver was an okay show. Opening band called Hemi Cuda. They had a song, Hemi fucking Cuda. And that would have been the most memorable part of the Denver show. Except something really weird happens, like a scene straight out of a movie. We're sitting there playing pinball. And guy from behind the bar says, hey, Jack, Jack White. Yeah. That was a phone call for you. Goes and grabs it. That typical, like, who knows I'm here? I didn't give anyone this number. But you'll have to wait until later to see how that little scene played out. Because that's all we've got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. Next time, we'll start to unwrap exactly how important that West Coast tour was for Jack and Meg. Because even though they had fun, played some good shows, and got back in one piece, according to Blackwell, no one would truly understand the implications of this run. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say for, for weeks, if not months later. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Cochin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. The biggest thanks of all, though, goes to Jack and Meg White, the White Stripes, because without them, none of this would be possible. And speaking of which, if you want an even deeper look into the life of the band around 2000, you can head to thirdbandrecords.com to pick up their latest vault package, the accompaniment to Distill, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the White Stripes' sophomore album. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the third man's social channels. 
I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. have some like personal stories but I don't know I mean I'll hold on to him <laughs> I just I just love him I love him as people I loved him then I love him now I wish that they were closer in my life now that I could see them play and see them around but I I have the memories and I'm just so happy that I have the memories of how great it was a little emotional <laughs> I if I could see Meg again, I'd love to see Meg. I I just I just worshipped her, and I think that um, we need her. We need her back. I miss you, Meg. <laughs>